And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Lura Kethledge, who during her near-death experience from a horse riding accident, awakened from the dream into reality, which we're going to learn about today. Lura, thank you for being on the podcast and welcome. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. All right, Laura, if you don't mind, can we start on the day that it happened and go from there? Sure. Um, this was in 1979. I was a teenager working at a nightclub. I had my own apartment, my car. You know, I, I thought I was very grown up at the time, but I was really an innocent. I'd find out I was an innocent that day. Um, it was a beautiful spring day in Centerville, Virginia, and I decided to go horseback riding. You know, I've been around horses a lot and, and done a lot of uh, classes and shows, but I wasn't that great of a rider. Well, I decided to ride a horse that was well above my abilities. This, I take full responsibility for uh, the accident. The horse took off with me and... I knew that I was going to fall. I was going to get hurt. You know, that feeling of, oh, no, you know, you just it's you're slipping out of control. Something bad's going to happen. But I was on the horse and all of the sudden I wasn't. I never hit the ground. I went straight. I was catapulted into a black tunnel. And this is 1979. Now, remind you, I want to remind the audience that this is before the Internet. This is before discussion about near-death experience. And if you said that you'd seen a spirit or you had uh, an NDE or anything, you were like a carnival freak society-wise. You were right up there with people that saw Bigfoot. So that is was a very um, shaming uh, culture back then about uh, near-death experience. But I went into this, this tunnel, Jeffrey, and I went and it was, I knew the walls were soft without touching them and enveloping, but it was a pitch black, the type of black I think you'd, you know, see in outer space or something. And I went through this tremendous tunnel, very, very high rate of speed, never hit the ground. Don't you remember hitting my head or breaking my nose or my hand or the, the, the beating I took from the fall. And I was in another dimension. So just think of it, you know, pretend you're riding in a car or a horse or walking down the street, and then suddenly you're transported to the middle of the Pacific Ocean, dumped in the middle of the ocean. That's how abrupt it felt. It mm. did. Would you like to hear what happens next? Of course. Okay. Um, I had, I met my grandfather who died when I was 12 and who I absolutely adored. Um, he was just a wonderful man, and he was so good to me when I was a little girl. So that was a very emotional experience to see him. He had the bluest eyes when he was alive, and he still had the bluest uh, eyes, even though his appearance was a luminous white but full-bodied figure, clothed, and a at the age he died, maybe a little bit younger, maybe in his 60s, not his 70s. So. I had a reunion with my grandfather, and then I was shown what my life had been during this 19 years. And it wasn't a happy event. Um, 
It wasn't happy at all. It wasn't a good feeling. Um, it was very, very uh, gut-wrenching. Some of the things that I had, you know, experienced as a kid. I'd been dyslexic. Um, and I had struggled in school and, and things like that. And some of my relationships. But the one thing that is very, very important to convey is that you see a total accounting, um, like um, not as a punishment, but how you've affected others. Did you affect them nicely? Were you nice to that kid on the playground? Were you a bully on that playground? All of those things. And I saw some of the things that I thought were very insignificant hurt other people, friends, schoolmates, things like that, as well as I had been hurt by family, friends, uh, uh, people. And then there's also a great deal of love and connection with, with people. Anyways, just try to imagine my 19-year-old brain going through a life review, and it was very, very in-depth, and it was very gut-wrenching. Some of the things were humorous. It wasn't all tragedy, but I felt more than anything that the pain that I felt was unnecessary, didn't have to happen. So there was like this regretful feeling. I'm not some, it's hard to imagine having 10 emotions hit you at once and you're ingesting it all. So it's very, very different than in physical reality where, you know, you might feel love, you might feel joy, anger, irritation, uh, you know, sequentially or one at a time, but these all these feelings were simultaneous. So it wasn't a good feeling. And when it was over, I was with my grandfather. And I said, you know, it's been so long. I mean, the, the whole, you know, regurgitation of my life felt like such a long experience, maybe six hours. Um, it wasn't in the few minutes I was dead. So I came back, um, you know, to my grandfather. And then the best thing happened that could have ever happened to me was going, and I there's a gap in time, to source. Going to source was like it's the sensation of speed. You're going inwards. <laughs> it's not a great way to explain it, but you're going inwards. But you're going to this place and all the pieces of you are there, all the personalities in your past life, which I didn't believe in reincarnation. And I thought it was like, hooey. Um, I was shown like this chamber and on one side were all the female lives I've lived on the other side were all the male uh, lives I lived all like in a straight line. And if I touched my hand, I saw a man and I could never really think of myself as male particularly, but he was there. And then I went over and I touched with my other hand, oh, a female and she wasn't too pretty. <laughs> she reminded me of this lunch lady that I had like in grammar school. Anyways, I got the sense that I've lived many lives, half as male, half as female. Um, that was cool. But going to source it's like being wrapped in a warm blanket of love and 
music floats in in random waves. It's hard to explain it. Not singing, but like a classical song. Nothing I've heard here, but I knew with the song. I don't know how to express it, but it was bright white, almost cloud-like with a soft density and floating in that sea of love. I realized it was all the pieces of me. It was source. It was my soul. It was my higher self, the collection, all the personalities. And I liked it. I mean, it's it's stronger than any drug you've ever taken. If you've ever taken Coke, it's stronger intoxication than that, stronger than liquor, stronger than sexual attraction than when you're in love with somebody. It was just a bliss. And as soon as I felt happy about it, like getting sucked back. And my grandfather was there and he didn't open his mouth, but I was hearing that I had to um I had to return and I wasn't happy about it. And as I was talking to him, all of these great epiphanies, understandings, um sing, these things that clicked together in my life review started to be just deleted. Like my brain was being washed of all these wonderful experiences, and I was trying to hold on to it mentally. And I was going backwards and I was in this layer outside of physical reality that was like mauve. There wasn't a floor, but there had to be a floor, but there wasn't a floor. Um, My grandfather was there. I was there. And then this tremendous pull being sucked, being just like a wave washing you over you know, in the ocean and taking you out to sea, that's about the best uh, comparison I can make. It's so much more. And I was back. And the two gentlemen that had been riding behind me were strangers. I just met them on the trail. And they had, one of them had resuscitated me. And the owner of the stable was there. And there was this guy there And I woke up and I'm looking like my eyes are bugging out because I'm back here. And my first thought is, this is not reality. And I was, I mean, I I should have been grateful to these two guys. I mean, they, they, you know, they picked me up off the ground. Somebody resuscitated me. I don't know what the heck happened. Uh, I was suddenly alive back in my body and it didn't even, I didn't even hurt physically for a few more seconds. And then I was really, I really got clobbered. So this guy was talking to me and he was so urgent and he was talking to the other guy to the other side and this woman, we've got to get her to the hospital. Should we drive her? Should we do an ambulance? They were going back and forth. And they said, just get her in the car. We don't want her to die here. You know, (laughs) thanks. And um, I got into the car and this sorrow hit me, this this grief and loss. And I wasn't with my grandfather anymore. And um, it was horrible, you know, that loss, that grief. And I was in the back of the car and, and thinking to myself, I don't know these men. <laughs> 
They may find my body parts in four states. I'm in a car with two strange men that are hysterical. I'm calm. And I'm like, oh, gosh, you know what? I'm thinking what next, you know, uh, plague or locust. And I remember going back like that with my head and then it was black all again. And I passed out. So um, we got to Fairfax Hospital and this is uh, April uh, 1979. I'm not sure what day it was. I think it might have been uh, somewhere in the 20s, 24th or 20th. So they had a hell of a time getting me out of the car. Because, it, you know, I was hurt. My finger was broken. My nose was broken. There wasn't a, uh, I don't think, an inch of me that wasn't going to be purple in a few hours. And I got into, uh, they got me in. Somehow I'm in the ER and my mother, you know, arrives. And she's a nurse. She worked at that Fairfax hospital at the time. She's a nurse. My mom was just a great gal. And she knew medical. She knew that I'd gotten hurt. And uh, I guess that we did an x-ray and a bunch of other stuff. And the doctor was taking this very seriously and people were hovering around me. Then I made a mistake. Would you like to hear my mistake? Sure. <laughs> it was a big one. Um, I looked up at the doctor and I tried to tell him about my near-death experience. I, you know, he said, well, you know, how did this exactly happen? I said, well, I was in the horse. Then I wasn't. And then I was in the field. I don't know what happened in between that, you know, because you're everybody's upset. You're getting upset. And I tried to tell him about it. And he had this look like, oh, like he, you know, oh, Lord. And um, he folded his arms and looked at me and then looked at my mother. What drugs has she taken? Um, and my mother just chimed right in. She he said, listen, this is my daughter. I know her. She doesn't do drugs. She doesn't do drugs ever. She's got a head injury. She's talking uh, like she may have hallucinated her. And he goes, she just had a bad dream. And my mother and the doctor were going at it. But the more my mother stuck up for me and tried to advocate, the nastier the doctor got. And he said, you know, um, just take her home. And my mother said, she's had a head injury. The, the She was unconscious. And he said, well, then just watch her when you take her home. And of course, mom is like all upset. And I'm sitting on the, in, the, in the ER laying flat on my back. Like, I don't care. They could have had World War III. I am grieving the loss that my, my grandfather's not with me anymore. And I really had a hard time explaining it to my mother. You know, I've just seen her, her dad and he's fine. Um, so my mother and I decided to keep it in between just a, her and I, because um, the family shouldn't know they wouldn't they wouldn't understand. It would distress my uncle, blah, 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 blah. We get into the car. My mom's in a Volkswagen rabbit and we get to the big intersection like I think it was in Merrifield in Virginia. And I had the bright idea to just to get out of the car because I was going back. <laughs> So my mother, I think she, you know, got my hair or my my shirt or something, pulled me back inside and 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 got me home. And she kept doing, you know, taking my vitals and checking my pupils and stuff like that. But it took me 12 hours to uh, to calm down. And in those 12 hours, my core beliefs 
childhood indoctrination into being a Protestant Presbyterian flip-flopped. And after those 12 hours, I just was a different person. Laura, thank you for sharing your experience with us. Can you give us a little more detail on how this is the dream and over there is reality? Oh, yeah, I can. Um, Later in life, after this happened, is when I had um, some visitations of uh, deceased relatives and um, got more understanding about how things work, more clarity. Some things started to come back from the NDE years later, Mm -hmm. insights. Basically, would you like me to tell you how I believe things work, my theory from my experiences? Yes. Okay. When the soul comes into physical reality, okay, which is where we're living right now, um, I believe it fractures into different personalities that come into uh, that are born in different times, like in the 1800s and the 2000s comes into uh, physical reality to learn lessons, to experience life in physical reality with no knowledge that you're part of a uh, soul group or um, that your personality can have different lives. Not a good explainer. Um, so you come into physical reality to learn and love and experience. And, you know, it, it's a pretty tough school. I mean, all lessons come hard earned for everybody. Everybody comes in with a deficit. You may have a crazy parent. There could be alcoholism. There could be poverty. All these different settings are by design in order for us to learn these hard lessons. So when we die and we go back to that collective, that source, we come with knowledge, experience. What happens after that? I don't know. I only got so far. but. It gave me a greater appreciation for being here and the sense when I after my near-death experience that I had to get it right. I had to try harder. Maybe that's being a nicer person or try to persevere more um, and not quit and not cop out, but take responsibility to how do you treat people? How are you affecting your sibling or the guy next door? Or what can you do that's a little bit more altruistic uh, outside of your your nature. So that was the gift I was able to take is a more general understanding how things work and how when you leave your body um, during crisis or during uh, an NDE, you can go to source and come back and be alive in physical reality. This knowledge I was shown was a tremendous gift, but it also distances you from people. You mentioned that when you come down here, you're fractured into different egos or different personalities. Yes. When you were were back with Source, did Mm -hmm. you still retain some sort of ego or did you just blend into Source and you were one with everything? No, I kept my own ego. I was still me. You know, and I kept checking myself, like my hands you know, checking myself, going kind of patting myself. I'm still me. I'm still me. Hmm. Yeah, I was. But now when I got to source, 
I don't know. I don't know if I blended in or what, but I remember being with my grandfather and kind of checking myself out, you know, hands, face, hair. So you really didn't have a a spirit body or do you feel like you had a spirit body because you could feel all this stuff? I did before I got to source, I was very aware of it. Once I got to source, it just wasn't um, uh, a thought in my head or my, and I, I blended in, but I was still me. I was still separate. What I really like about your experience, and it's very common with a lot of other people that I've interviewed, is that you didn't experience the injury. You were taken out of your body just before it happened. Thankfully, because it was a, I was going, I, I was in a hand gallop. I had a helmet on, but I was still went face first off into a gully with rocks. So I'm kind of glad I didn't see it and I didn't feel it. I appreciated that a lot. Now, you mentioned that it took you about 12 hours to get over that. Was that Mm -hmm. just the initial shock of everything that happened? And did it still take you much longer to process the entire experience? It took me 12 hours to calm down. I wasn't upset about my injuries. Um, I mean, I heard I ate. I even ate. I ate a lot worse like two days later. Um, I was just, to be ripped away from my grandfather was really upsetting. I mean, I'm so, it's hard to talk about. I was so glad to see him. I was so glad to talk to him. It's so beautiful to know he exists. And that the love is still real. You know? Mm-hmm. Or even more intensified, which is beautiful. It's so wonderful to know that there is that he's okay. When you were there, did you have an overwhelming sense of love? From him, yes. Yes. It hits you in a bl- like a blast. You know how cold air blasts you? That's how you can feel when someone's approaching you and their love, like a blast of love. And it's it's it feels natural. It doesn't feel natural in physical reality, but it felt pretty natural there. Mm. So it was wonderful. After your NDE, how did you change as a person? Well, as I said, you know, I didn't have a religious epiphany with this near-death experience. Didn't see Jesus, didn't have a come to Jesus moment. I had a sense of logic that this is okay, this is how it works. It's logical. It's a different dimension. It's an extension of uh, your body um, survives. Uh, your soul continues. How about that? You, you continue after physical death when your body doesn't. So I got that part, um, but I was still grappling and still very anxious. I talked to my mom a little bit about it, and she really believed me because her brother and her uh, her grandmother had the gift. Of course, it would have really helped um, if she'd explained it, you know, before the accident. Um, but I had started hearing stories about, you know, my great grandmother and how she knew um, people were going to come over before they did. I guess she was considered a psychic. And sometimes people were, they were ailing would go to her. She lived in Canada and she died many years ago. So my mother was a little bit more open, uh, uh, open to it. And eventually she, you know, we talked about it when, as I got older, I was so distressed about everything. I couldn't sleep. 
so I decided to um, go to a therapist, a psychologist, and I went to her and talked to her, and um, her name was Marjorie, Marjorie, and I think she was one skip ahead of her patients, let me tell you. So uh, I tried to tell her about the accident and stuff, and then she just leaned over and said, are we having a pity party because our nose is broken? And she turned everything into something it wasn't. She was projecting her own problems on me. And I shut down. I didn't talk about it with boyfriends. Uh, my sister and my mom was it. I didn't want to read anything about it. I just wanted, I didn't want to be labeled as a freak or odd or mental or whatever. So I just tried to push it aside. But you know what? When you push something aside, eventually it comes back much stronger. Has the memory of the experience faded over the years? No. Isn't that weird? No. It hasn't. What do you think inspires you about the experience? I took great comfort in knowing that my grandfather was there, knowing this isn't it, because very soon after I became ill after the accident uh, with autoimmune disease. And then the real struggle of my life began with in and out of hospitals, um, tumors, surgeries, the whole roller coaster uh, disaster of autoimmune and being told that, you know, I wouldn't live several times. And one miracle after another, I I came out of it and I'm doing pretty good, Mm. but at a high cost. Well, you don't remember much from your NDE. Seems like you weren't able to. Do you think that you knew if you came back that you're going to have to go through all this? I had a feeling of dread that something laying ahead for me wasn't pleasant. I didn't know it was going to be this bad. I didn't know I'd have 20 plus surgeries. Um, <laughs> if, I, if I'd known this sounds terrible, I would have tried harder to stay. I wouldn't have put myself through it. But then I also had a feeling I had a lot to learn and um, I wanted to figure things out. This curiosity, it just envelops you after a near-death experience. You want to figure it out because, Jeffrey, when I die, if I if I went to, hypothetically, a place that said lecture on heaven and heaven, I take the lecture first. <laughs> Do you fear death at all? No. No, not at all. If you come across a friend or a family member who has lost somebody and is grieving, what kind of advice do you give them? You can't really give anybody advice unless they're open to it. You know, this is, I don't, you know, I've got a lot of friends and very, I I really don't share this side of myself very much. Now, if they were to ask me, I'll answer, but um you know, I'm not the go-to person. A lot of people have a lot more paranormal or out-of-body experience than I have, but I've had enough. So I explained to a friend that was dying a little bit. I hope it helped her. Um, prepped my mother what to do so that she would have an easier transition. And I also took care of both of my parents for five years as they were both dying. Mom from cancer, dad from Parkinson's. And I tried to prep my father a little bit. He wasn't hearing any of it, but we had a shared death experience when he passed. And that was very helpful to me. And um, I I think it helped him. 
Can you tell us about that experience? Yes. Um, Dad was, uh, I brought him home, you know, I kept my parents home, but dad was in a bad way and we'd had hospice and things like that. And I'd been up for like two nights with him. You know, he was, uh, he was uh, unresponsive. He couldn't talk and he was in the, uh, the chain stoke uh, breathing. So at about, um, I don't know, 630 in the morning, I was so exhausted. I said to the nurse, I just got to go lay down, you know, wake me, give me an hour sleep and I'll, you know, take another shift. But I'd been up for a lot of hours. So I remember closing my eyes and thought, okay, it's going to be okay. She's going to call me if things change. And I felt myself drift. Just this floating, drifting, wonderful feeling of transportation. And then I was with my dad. And my dad had a crew cut. I hadn't seen him with a crew cut since the 1960s. And he was younger. And I'm sitting in a car with daddy. And um, it's all in black and white. So we're traveling in this car. And I know that this is, I I know that I'm out of my body. I'm with my father. How am I going to handle this? You know, I think he's either dead or dying. So I just let him talk. We were we were traveling and then we stopped and he took this book and he started to rip it. He says, um, I'm, I'm canceling everything. I'm canceling. And he started to rip this book. And I'm like, what are you canceling? And he said he's um, canceling his life insurance or life something I couldn't hear or mm-hmm. pick up the words exactly. And I'm trying to tell him it's going to be okay. He's relieved. He is relieved that he he looked 30. He had on uh, like a tweed um, herringbone um, sports jacket. He had a bow tie on and he had a crew cut. I haven't seen him like that since 1967 or eight. And. Um, he said, he said, now I'm cancel, I'm canceling my life now. And before I could get any words out, uh, first of all, I wanted to say, I told you so, but I didn't get to do that. So I'm like, and then boom, I'm just, just sitting up in bed and I hear my dad go, ah, I make this awful noise, just awful noise, rat, death rattle. And I ran to him. And as I ran to him, he expired Hmm. and I kissed him and I cried. And I was so grateful that we had a shared death experience to know that he wasn't panic stricken. He looked like the best version of him. Mm -hmm. He couldn't have been over 30. And he was relieved. And I think he was relieved because uh, the, the, the struggle to stay alive, the pain, um, he was ready. So that's what yeah. happened. It sounds like since he was canceling everything, he was finished with his life and ready to move on. Yeah, I just was shocked to see him devoid of color as myself. Hmm. But I didn't feel 57. I felt younger. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. While this was happening, I felt younger. Like in my old self, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe if you could have seen yourself, you would have also looked 30. I hope so. I looked great when I was 30. 
after you say that now, after your experience, have you noticed that you have any abilities that you didn't have before that could be considered psychic? Yeah. Yeah. I think when you've had an, and this is just my theory, if you want to hear it, when you've had a near death experience or significant out of body trauma, you come back with maybe a pinch of psychic. Nobody's got a full cup. Nobody I know. Um, strange things have happened since that I have uh, gone on television, talked about that I've shared, parlayed into books because it's just so, so weird. Um, yeah, like after a few of the relatives died, they came to see me before I'd gotten the call and even known they were dead. Some some things like that have happened. And um, first time it happened, I got up and ran because I was like in my tw early 20s and I wasn't prepared. Uh, and it was so sad because it was my sweet Aunt Evelyn who died. Alzheimer's ravaged her brain and she was in a nursing home. I didn't know she was near death, but it was God's mercy, really, that she died. So um, I was just sitting in bed and, you know, she came in like this, an orb or um, energy came in and I looked up and I saw it. I knew it was some, I just got this wave. I knew somebody had died and that they were there. Thank God I had my nightgown on because I ran straight into the living room and I would have done it buck naked because I was so shocked and, and scared. <laughs> and I was, you know, screaming. I had another relative there and told him and I was shaking. Like, you know, when you take your dog to the vet and the legs are shaking, mm -hmm. I was right up there. <laughs> so that was the first time it happened. After a few more times, I'm, totally calm with it and very welcoming and, and it's fine. Um, so it's happened maybe a dozen times in my life. I notice you have a cat behind you. Oh, yeah. Do you feel that your NDE has changed the way animals react to you? Mm, I don't know. Um, cats, dogs, horses always loved me. I was, you know, I, I love them. They love me. Um, I had a horse for 25 years that was like my child. And um, we were so close and intuitive to each other. Um, he can he could tell when my changing, you know, when I was riding him and I changed my breathing, he that when to uh, change his gait. We were that close. So I have a strong uh, connection of animals. I've seen a few pets after they died, which was wonderful. Um, but I have to be very clear. If I have a psychic experience or paranormal experience, I can't make it happen. When I want it to happen, it never does. And when it does, it comes in sideways, the message. So um, I'm no beacon of anything. I've just had some very fluky experiences that I kind of trace back to the NDE. Do you think that you still have some kind of opening to the other side? That Oh, very much. These cause you to have those experiences? Yes. Yes, I do. They're just weird. I, you know, I trust my gut feeling after this so much more than I did when I was younger, because that gut feeling is part of it. This this intuition, um, it just changes you. Your whole perspective after a near-death experience is, um, if it doesn't drive you crazy, you know, it, it integrates into daily living. You mentioned books earlier, and so you're an author of romance fiction and 
you have a series called Near Death Saga series, and you include NDEs in these books. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Well, you know, it's really strange because I had a dream back in like 1987, and I dreamt a storyline. And I lived in New York, and I had worked in television stuff. So I, I, I had a friend of mine that won an Academy Award, and I told him the story that I had kind of dreamt. He said, well, go with it. And I said, I'm not a writer. But eventually, you know, um, I just started writing and (laughs) all these stories, all these characters, I put in things that had happened to me in every book. I have real paranormal experiences or uh, contacts and stuff that happened to me. And this book flowed out of me called Near Death Connection. And then I thought, well, it's a fluke. And then I thought, no, I've got another story in me. And then I started writing the sequel and the sequel to that. But these characters have a a terrible uh, life-changing event and they come uh, together in a a house in uh, rural Virginia, all these people that have had near-death experiences and return with psychic insights. And they're trying to find out what urgent message this ghost is sending them. So um, I did the book and it was a real outlet for what I'd been through. Um, Because, I mean, I'd have to talk to you like all day for some of the paranormal events that have happened. I wouldn't want to put anybody to sleep, but they've been so weird and random and insightful, you know? Yeah. So I think it's great that you had a place to put them, which are your books. Yeah, I, it was a great outlet for me. You know, there's a, it's a good murder mystery and a romance novel, yes. But what I did, I decided to do when I wrote the books is to explain the death process. I explain reincarnation, some all the things that I learned that are hard for me to verbalize because some of the communication is shown in just pictures and feelings and emotions that you absorb. So I was able to parlate how things work, how the death process work, how what a near death experiences, and what happens after you get to the other side. Do we find these books on Amazon, on your website, or both? Um, you can go on my website, lauraketch.com, L-U-R-A-K-E-T-C-H.com, or you can just go to Amazon and they're here. Hmm. <laughs> So kind of you to mention them. Do you think that you came back because you have a purpose? And if so, have you discovered what it is? Yeah. Yeah. I was shown. I asked. I didn't like it. Can you share your purpose? I basically said, I didn't say, what is my purpose in life? Why am I here? Same thing. I was shown, it flashed in my mind, a very dark room a table, an oblong table, and an IV bag on the table. And I took that meaning my illness. Mm. Didn't like it. I thought it would be for something better. I didn't like it at all. So, you know, some of that near-death experience wasn't too pleasant. And that was one of the most unpleasant aspects of it. Do you think with that knowledge, it made you more able to handle your illnesses and go through the treatments for them? I could handle a lot of the surgeries. What I couldn't handle was the chronic migraines I had for 19 years, and I finally had to have surgery because it was so bad. Um, 
I don't, I mean, I knew that there was a greater purpose. I just didn't like the hands I was dealt. I mean, I was annoyed over it and just ready to do something different. Kill me or cure me, but don't let me languish. Um, I felt a lot more disconnected to uh, people and more within myself, but I was more comfortable being in within myself, you know, um, because an illness can uh, isolate you, but having the understanding of the illness is like double isolation. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions or chit chat with you. Are you open to that? Oh, absolutely. How should they reach you? Well, they can contact me through the website, lauracatch.com. I have, you know, um, you can uh, get, send me a message through that. That's the easiest. They can also, I um, did uh, five, well, five or six videos and and uh, documented uh, some different paranormal experiences I had. And then they could also, you know, go to Amazon, watch the TV shows I had when, you know, when I had a ghost come to the house. Uh, that was one TV show. And um, the strange thing about my phone, unplugged phone ringing, that was interesting. Mm. Another thing that was interesting that I haven't done a video out about is me and televisions. I have a TV in my bedroom. They ha- they just turn on by themselves in the middle of the night. This has happened to the point where I went out and bought another TV. And I did that twice. I had to take the televisions out of my bedroom because at night the electronics will go on. Sometimes my computer electronics will go on and in the middle of the night or like at 4 a.m. And it's just very weird. Laura, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? What my near-death experience taught me is how to, you know, you really have to cherish this life, do the best you can. Um but the great thing is there it just you know when physical reality is over you continue and that's kind of very comforting i mean it's wonderful to know that the person you've lost you'll be reunited hopefully with them uh at one point in time which is great there's no forever you know there's the goodbye is not forever I think that's really what I've got to say, which is great because I have seen my grandfather since this experience, which is wonderful. Laura, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest. I really appreciate you and I wish you a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. You have a good one. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.